several moments. Uh, the experience, I guess, this afternoon is going to be a little different. Uh, we're going to have uh, a few of us that are going to come and share. And so I will open, and then Steve is going to come up, Steve Brickhouse. Uh, I think you're the only Steve here, so uh, we don't have to reference last name. And then Frankie is going to come after Steve. Um, in our ongoing effort in prayer and in wanting to be faithful to the Lord in what these gatherings actually mean and where they're supposed to fit and get traction in the overall consideration of our church and church family, uh, we realize that we are one church that is represented in many houses. So one church that is represented in many houses. Uh, you could say we are a church and a collection of churches. Um, a church, meaning the individual experience of the house churches, are not completely autonomous, uh, meaning that they are severed or disconnected from the idea of a bigger or uh, more collected whole, uh, but that each of what is the house church and churches, as we call them, uh, because they are churches. Um, biblically, they are churches. Uh, they are smaller family units um, prevailing in cultivating a spirit-empowered life of discipleship and mission. Um, that, that is the ongoing goal for these house churches, is spirit-empowered life for discipleship and mission, um, the cultivation of a smaller family unit. Um, and it is important. Uh, it, it is important for us to relate to a smaller group uh, on a more consistent basis, to have to come through the crucible of relationship and circumstance in order to establish history and integrity in God together as family. Um, you can't do that when you are um, two miles wide and three inches deep with everybody. Uh, you just don't get the necessary points of contact in order to bring development on our own lives and then you don't get to experience the relational or circumstantial uh, ups and downs that are intended to develop us in God together as the people of God. Um, and so these smaller family units, uh, we are very aware that what we're doing, we're doing it on purpose. Uh, we, we didn't arrive at this conclusion on accident. Uh, it was very intentional. And as we've said previously and even over the history of what we're doing, um, what we are doing was birthed out of obedience and not out of offense. Right? Oftentimes, uh, people who are in house churches, missional communities, organic fellowships, uh, whatever language you want to apply to a variety of ways that these um, experiences and movements get going, a lot of times they're birthed out of offenses and not out of obedience. Um, you have people that didn't feel valued in the bigger thing, or you have people that felt unseen, or, you know, their gift wasn't appreciated, or, out of, you know, whatever, on and on and on. Uh, the million umpteenth reasons that people have to be offended and then to go off and start their own thing. Um, that, that's not what happened. It started out of obedience. And so in a jealousy to be faithful to the Lord, um, we take these gatherings, meaning these corporate meetings, these all-together gatherings, uh, we, we take them very seriously before the Lord and the consideration of God's unique and intended purpose to fulfill or to accomplish each time we gather like this. Um, we don't gather like this as infrequent as we do because we don't enjoy these experiences. 
Um, there have been times where the Lord has asked us to gather more frequently this way, and we do that with joy. Uh, but it's to get traction in the houses and in what we're cultivating together as family in those smaller family-styled units where, again, it's empowered or spirit-empowered life to cultivate discipleship and mission. Um, and so in that, we're going to have the different leaders of those house churches come up and share. And as we were kind of talking and praying through, as we do on a regular basis, um, we felt, uh, again, from the Lord, which is important, um, that it would be good for us to answer a few questions in front of or in a corporate way. Um, and so we're going to do that. We're going to answer three questions. It's not going to be like some Q&A session, uh, right, or some karaoke question session where we just field random questions out of the crowd. Uh, I'm going to present the question and then answer it. Um, and so I'm going to start, uh, and then Frankie is going to come up, and then Steve will come up. Uh, and we'll just see what the Lord does in a way to bring it all together and kind of close out our time together. Um, I'm going to answer the question, what is a leader? Um, what is a leader? Uh, and I'm going to attempt to answer the question. Um, now, granted, being that you know we're going to have three people share, the goal is 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, somewhere in there each. It's a goal, you know what I mean? Everybody needs a goal, right? You've got to have a target, right? There's got to be some kind of all right, bullseye, at least that you can see, all right? Even if you're... Uh, anyways, uh, so I'm going to answer the question, what is a leader? And I'm going to attempt to answer it, uh, what is a leader biblically? Why is it important or necessary? And how does it function or get fleshed out in our church work or in our context? Um, what is a leader, right? Leadership and the idea scripturally. Uh, because it's important that we define the terms so that we can all rally around the same ideas or concepts and aspire towards the same things together in God. Uh, oftentimes when you have misunderstanding, it's because you are defining terms differently and arriving at different conclusions even though the verbiage is the same. Right? I've used the example before uh, in a corporate gathering like this. It's like saying, well, I go to the gym. Well, that's cool. I go to the gym too. You may mean you go to a Pilates class while I mean I go to Orange Theory or you go to uh, a Globo gym or a traditional, you know, like um, whatever. I don't even know the names anymore, but uh, whatever a bigger traditional gym is or someone else is going to hot yoga, uh, right? Like we define the terms differently and so there's a disconnect in us using the same language but not necessarily being able to work together towards the same conclusion. And so oftentimes there's misunderstanding because we are not connecting through the language or the verbiage. And so it's important that we define the terms, especially in an ongoing way as we're asking the Lord to raise up leaders or to possibly send and plant leaders for his jealousy in our church work and in our city. When we say, Lord, raise up leaders or send leaders, what are we actually asking for? Right? And so it's important. Right? If we have a jealousy in the place of prayer, Lord, raise up leaders. 
right? Like, raise up people from among us. Touch them with power and by your spirit. Do a transformational work in them that they rise in the work in the place of stature and influence in order to be what we are going to qualify here in a moment as a leader. And it's important that we use the scriptures to do that. Because there's a lot of different experiences And there's a lot of ways that we have been conditioned over time in order to arrive at different conclusions as to what a leader or leadership actually means. Um, Historically, maybe we're familiar with leadership being a unique ability or contribution towards a church effort or system or environment. Uh, Maybe a leader in terms of how we've been conditioned is someone who contributed in a church environment, in a church system, or in a church work or effort. Uh, What does that look like? Maybe you were considered a leader because you led worship. Uh, Maybe you were considered a leader because you led prayer. Maybe you were considered a leader because uh, the microphone was utilized by you. Uh, Maybe you were considered a leader, right? There's a variety of ways. Um, a, A funny church term for me, uh, is uh, the finance pastor. That's, that's a funny term for me, um, which we'll get to that. To, to imagine that, that I pastor finance reports and that I oversee budgets and that I'm responsible for, uh, right, like the nickels and dimes of the organization and that I'm accountable for what happens with, you know, spreadsheets and money and on and on. Um, as we're going to look at biblically, right, the scripture intends for that term pastor to be used because it's only found in one or two translations. The term that's way more familiar and way more present is shepherd. Um, Pastor at times can be something that we've experienced organizationally, but the Bible takes what we know positionally and works it out relationally. Right? The Bible takes what we know positionally. Think everything that God is All of what he attributes to himself positionally, he experientially relates to us, or he wields it relationally. Um, It is not politically, where they can be the creation of terms and platforms, yet a disconnect from a relational connection or investment in real people. And this is kind of the way that we're going to create the terms is if you use the scriptures, a leader is someone that has given an an, an evidence of a transformed life. Now, first off, no believer is exempt from a transformed life. So we're not going to say that leaders are the only ones that are held to the account of a transformed life because the expectation is that all that are born again to all that are in Christ, that they are now a new creature or a new creation. And in an ongoing way, it is the work of the Spirit to transform us and to conform us to the image of Jesus. So no believer is exempted from the conversation of a transformed life. What we are saying is that the standard of leadership biblically begins with the evidence of a transformed life. Not the assumption of a transformed life, but the evidence of a transformed life. So biblical leadership would be the evidence of a transformed life and convictions that have been consistent through testing over long periods of time. 
the evidence of a transformed life and convictions that have been consistent through a long period of time and a variety of seasons and unique relational and circumstantial testing. So when we say, Lord, we need leadership, what we're not saying is we need a content creator. What we're not saying is we need someone with a business degree or someone even with a theology degree, right? Someone with a theology degree doesn't necessarily mean you have the evidence of a transformed character. It doesn't mean that you have a witness of convictions that have been consistent and they've been tested over a long period of time. Which is why Paul would say in 1 Timothy 3, new believers can't be in leadership. Because you haven't had a witness of enough life happening to you in order to give the evidence that you are a transformed person and convictions that are established in your life are going to remain consistent through the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows. In more simplistic terms, we need a witness, which is what Jesus prayed for. In Acts chapter 1, he said, I'm going to send the Spirit so that you can receive power to become a witness, because that's what I'm longing for. I'm longing for a people that are going to provide a demonstration or an evidence. This is where leadership begins. Leadership begins with the evidence of a transformed person and the witness of convictions that are consistent through a variety of seasons of life. What that means is, is we need proximity to be able to watch you live before we give you influence. That means we need a vantage point to see how you handle life. We need to see who you are when they talk about you. We need to see who you are when they betray you. We need to see how you handle life. And why is this important? Is because biblically, leaders are people that give an evidence of a transformed character, meaning that they've been born again, and that there's a witness on their life to an actual or a substantial life change. That they were something that they aren't anymore, and that they're in process with God. Now, the idea is not perfection, it's process. They're in process with God, but there's an evidence of a transformed reality. There's an evidence of that. There's an evidence of a transformed reality, and then the establishment of conviction over time that's been tested. That's been tested. Right? Paul would say in 1 Timothy 3, if any man wants to serve, he must first be tested. He's not talking about some weird like maroon, uh, marine or military boot camp experience. And he's not talking about, in trivial ways, uh, just manipulatively treating people weird, trying to test them to see if they qualify for your terms of leadership. He's talking about watch them live. Watch them live. And let time pass by, which is why they can't be a new believer. They can't be a new convert, lest they fall into the same temptation of the devil. Let time pass by. See who they are when they're winning. You realize the New Testament has a lot to say about the love of money. See who they are when they're winning. See what incentivizes them. See what motivates them. See the framework with which they live their life by. See what easily gets them to compromise or to step aside on the things of God. That's where convictions have to remain consistent through a variety of seasons in order to qualify biblically to be an influence in God's house. 
It's not just people with a dynamic character. It's not just people who fit the demographic of who we're trying to reach. It's not just people who are willing to show up. They're willing, right? In most cases, uh, we've experienced or seen leadership through people that were willing. Well, I was willing to go. I was willing to do. I was willing to preach, right? But that's because in certain cases, people value doing more than they did being. And they let you do something which created a platform or an influence or possibly even a titling upon your life that your actual transformation or the embodiment of the conforming to the image of Jesus didn't actually line up to qualify biblically with you influencing people the way that you did. And it doesn't mean that like we just trash everything that's happened. No, it means that we want to purify the definitions. It means that we want to more acutely and accurately understand the terms of what the scriptures are prescribing for life together in God and in God's house. And Paul says that leadership looks like a transformed person. An evidence or a witness of a transformed person who has consistent convictions. We need to see who we are when we're winning and when we're losing. We need to see through the ups and downs, through the woes and the celebrations, if our convictions are actual anchored convictions or if they're just conveniences based off of our circumstances. We need to see if our life has actually become an influential resource to aligning people to God and his purposes. And that requires a particular life cycle of being tested, which is where Paul says, if any man desires to serve in that capacity, to relationally influence people, biblical leadership is relational influence. It's relational influence. But one of the tragedies um, is when we define our influence, or our connection to a church work based off of our contribution to that church or church work. Where I'm connected to the platform and a worship experience, but disconnected from the idea of influencing people in a relational way, in an ongoing way. But yet I'm termed as a pastor. Right, But where the Bible actually qualifies a relational influence that's necessary for that titling of shepherd or leader in that capacity where there must be a relational proximity there must be a relational investment there must be a relational exposure in order for those that are determined or qualified as leaders in order for their influence to be real in a relational way in a church or church work Um, the writer of Hebrews suggests that leadership, the ones that watch over you, in Hebrews uh, 13, I believe it is, he says, they are accountable to God for you. He says, so don't make it challenging for them in their ability to actually be faithful to the Lord. But, but yeah, and, and it's funny as that is, that there's an accountability to the Lord, right? James would suggest that not many of you desire to be teachers or influences or examples because there will be a more strict judgment. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. There was the idea of a relational proximity 
in order for a life that has been established in God and the quality of life that has been established in God to become a resource or an influence in the midst of a people. That is the idea. Where a transformed life with the evidence and witness of consistent conviction and character becomes a resource in a church community or in the house of God. And so it's important to qualify what we mean when we say leader. Because we're not qualifying leadership based off of unique contributions. Right? As historically it may have been. Um, what, what does that actually mean? That, that means you can lead in the place of worship and not necessarily be considered a part of the church leadership. And I, I don't know why the two would have to mean the same thing. You can lead a prayer set in the prayer room and not necessarily be considered a part of the church leadership. And I don't know why the two would have to be the same thing. Right? We, we want to purify the definition so that we can be jealous for what it is that God is going to do in our midst to establish that or to raise up others who would actually embody that. And it's important to actually define the term. So we are not defining it by unique contributions. We want everyone to serve and to contribute. We want everyone to do what they're called to do and to function the way that they're supposed to function. But functioning does not actually have anything to do with the idea of leadership, right? Leadership, biblically, is the idea, again, of even what Peter would say. It's the idea of a parental-type influence in God's house. Are we all equal in value? For sure. This has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with value. I, I think at times we... Uh, we end up in difficult spaces because we try to make it about things that it's not. It has nothing to do with value. No one's saying that leaders are more valuable than anyone else. Um, it has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with accountability or responsibility to the Lord. Um, and it is a fact that there are people who bear a different level of responsibility before the Lord. They've been invited into a different measure of accountability and have actually answered that call to put their life in a unique space to become an influence and a resource and, as Peter would suggest, a servant in God's house. Biblical leadership is seen through the lens of servanthood. It's not a top-down structure. Uh, in fact, those that are the greatest Jesus would say, should become the least. They should become the floor or the foundation upon which God begins to build, which is the idea of Ephesians chapter 4. You turn the whole thing upside down. Gifts and leadership influences take the bottom, and they esteem the saints, and they prioritize the people of God, and they see their life in service to God as a resource to awaken God's purposes and to align God's people to those purposes uniquely in church communities. And so when we consider biblical leadership, we're talking about a parental-style influence in God's house. Interestingly, the term is God's house. And the evaluation is all there, 1 Timothy 3.5. A man must be able to manage his own house. He must be tested before you let him serve. Right? That's the establishment of character. 
It's the establishment of consistent conviction that gives off a witness and an evidence that your life is able to become a resource and influence others on the journey of life to get aligned to God and to more, uh, more intimately get aligned to God's purposes for your life. And it takes real time for these people to be formed. Spiritual formation is absolutely necessary. Spiritual formation, journeying with God and becoming something over a long period of time, obedience in a singular direction over a long period of time is absolutely necessary. As Dave Papavisi exhorted us last August, he said, God's going to raise up powerful people and families from among us. The only way that's going to happen is through spiritual formation. That's the only way it's going to happen. When Samuel was with us a couple of weeks after that, he said that biblically, if you evaluate it, between the window of 35 to 45 is when people typically get commissioned into what their life-defining journey is going to be about. Because it just takes time for God to form people. It just takes time. And so we're asking the Lord to raise up leaders among us. And we acknowledge that in each of the house churches, there is a leadership family that is leading those different house church experiences or uh, helping to cultivate God's purposes um, in those individual house churches as they are. And so we do recognize uh, leaders and we long for God to raise up more leaders um, from our midst, but we want biblical leadership, right? We want biblical leadership. And you guys. I, I wish at times there was like a big mirror up this way so that y'all could see what I see. <laughs> like when I'm standing up here. Um, it would probably be pretty funny to you, too. If, if, <laughs> um, but we do. We, we want biblical leaders, and we want to qualify people for leadership biblically. Right? That, that, that should have been an amazing place to amen. Right? Like, we, we want to qualify people for leadership biblically. Um, and we want to use the scriptures to vet people, or to evaluate people. The scriptures, not our own unique agenda, right? Not some weird tribal or stream-ism where like you've got to get into our stream. And, and No, 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 we want to use the scriptures to bring the necessary evaluation on the lives of people and in an ongoing way, even the lives of those that we already acknowledge as leaders, um, even those that we acknowledge as leaders are not outside of the evaluation of the scripture, but there should be the ongoing evidence in greater measure of what the scripture prescribes. We should be able to see that, right? And so we want to qualify people biblically, and we want in an ongoing way for the Lord to raise up others to do in like fashion. Um, and it is a parental style influence because it is God's house and family. Amen. So I'm going to pray. 
Lord, we're asking you this afternoon to um, do something among us. Uh, when we say raise up leaders, uh, Lord, we ask you to do what we know is so costly among us. Um, so costly. Would you raise up those whose lives will become a pattern, um, whose lives will become reproducible? Um, they'll become an influence and a resource. Um, not for the world's applause or the world's value system. But Lord, the evidence of a transformed character, Matthew 5 through 7 and Galatians 5, the evidence of consistent convictions, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Lord, would you raise up people from among us that actually embody your desires in the place of character and conviction? people that have been tested, people that give off a witness because the consistency of their life through a variety of life seasons and circumstance causes them to shine. They reveal, they are a demonstration of your desires. Lord, would you do that among us? Um, and would you help us even in our own lives to desire and to aspire um, towards what is the biblical prescription and definitions, um, the authenticity of the word at work among us, Lord, we pray. Um, would you do this? In Jesus' name. Ask me if this was too high. <clears throat> this is our leader, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Amen. Um, yeah, so uh, as Mike shared, we're all kind of addressing different questions. <clears throat> and the one that I'm going to be addressing, and I, I think we'll, I'll start the same way in defining the term, is what is discipleship? Because if we're going to talk about what leaders are, well, what are leaders supposed to do? Right? Make disciples. And so I think that, <clears throat> as Mike mentioned, if we don't have the same definition, then we can say that we're disciples, being disciples, making disciples, whatever it is, because we're just kind of like, well, whatever target you want to set, you can define on your own. And so I'm going to look at, I want us to look at Luke 6. To look for a definition, or at least what Jesus says about what the outcome of discipleship is. <clears throat> and so this is where we'll start the conversation. In Luke 6, verse 40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Simple, short answer. A disciple is a student. Students are, in, are trying to learn something. There's a, there's a posture in your heart as a student that you're like, I'm here to receive something. I'm here to learn how to do something. Uh, and so in Jesus' mind, 
if you've given yourself to being a disciple, when you become mature, when whatever is being deposited in you starts to grow and mature, you see a reflection of whatever it was that was being poured into you. And so I would submit that all of us have been discipled and are making disciples. The question is whether or not we've been discipled well and are making disciples the way Jesus wants us to make disciples. Whether or not the things that are being invested in us are actually working towards us becoming like the teacher. Ultimately, we know the teacher is Jesus. Ultimately. But in his wisdom, the way he has set it up, he's given us one another. He's given us each other so that as you become like your leaders, you become like Jesus. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the model. And I would submit that whatever, whatever measure of the character of Christ that you have in your life right now, present day, Whatever measure of the character of Christ and the surrender to, to, the, to the Father's will and his desires reveals what you've been submitting yourself to. It's, it's growing up. It's maturing in you. There's no, there's no new believers in here. Everybody in here that I'm aware of has been, would say they've been walking with Jesus for a while. And so whatever level of maturity we have is a reflection of what we've been taught, what we've been putting on the inside of us. And unfortunately, in many cases, we see that sometimes people just get discipled by a different definition. You know, it's, if, if you, you know me, you know I was discipled. Janelle and I were discipled by Dave and Danielle Papavisi. And I remember 15 years ago, I asked Dave if he would disciple me. And what I was asking him was, would you sit with me, meet with me once a week for a couple hours? I tell you my problems. You give me some Bible verses. We pray. Do it again next week. That's, that's, that was my understanding of discipleship. And I remember at this point in my life, Dave was the godliest man I had ever met. I'd never known anybody that walked with God the way he did. I wanted what he had. So I asked him to disciple me. And the godliest man I had ever met said, I don't have time for that. And I remember being like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but he didn't have time for whatever my definition of discipleship was. And so if you know our story, my story, Dave delivered pizzas for a living. And I happened to live in the area where he delivered pizzas. And so I would get out of work at 5 o'clock, take the bus to the pizzeria, and I would deliver pizzas with him two to three times a week, a couple hours each night. I was, I was dating Janelle. I was single. I was dating Janelle. I didn't have any kids. I wasn't married. And so I thought I was just hanging out with Dave. And it, honestly, it took me six to eight months before I realized that I was being discipled. That the Lord was using him to shape and mold me into Jesus' likeness and character. Right? So... And I understand, like, now I, I couldn't go hang out and deliver pizzas with somebody two, three nights a week. I get that. I got kids and, and all that. I understand that life may not allow for that. But what I want to highlight, from, even from my own life, my own experience, 
was that there was a posture in my heart while I was sitting in the passenger seat of a Honda Civic. I wasn't here just because I needed a friend. I wasn't here just because I needed a good Christian buddy to keep me out of trouble. I was here because I wanted to learn something from him. I wanted to receive something from him. So there was a posture in my heart that's like, man, whatever I can get from you, I'm going to get it. And so there was a lot of just riding around talking about the scriptures, talking about sports, talking about life, sharing stories, whatever it was. Uh, but as I've grown and matured, and, and Janelle, we would, Janelle would say the same thing. If you spent time with their family, there was a lot of things about the Papavisis that you would say, oh, that's where Frankie gets it from. Like, it wasn't like there was this, like, rocket science, like, I'm going to try to figure out how to one-up them to prove that I figured it out. No, I was like, oh, man, this is working for you. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to imitate your life. Our family looks very similar to the Papavisis family structure, the way they do things, to, to present day. Jubilee just turned 13 in January. It's my first teenager. Dave's got three of them. So there's st still, to this day, questions like, how does this work? Give me wisdom because you've gone ahead of me. But that's what discipleship looks like. And so in Matthew 28, we all know this passage. When Jesus says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And, Lord, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. We know this. This was the instruction that he gave to his leaders. This was like, hey, here's what I want you doing with your time. Shaping and forming people into my likeness and my image. That's what you do with your time now. And so... We start there, and then now, if you go modern day, discipleship looks like give yourself to this once-a-week program. Let's go through this book together, and when you're done, we'll give you a certificate. And this is what most of us consider discipleship, right? And so this gets replicated and because you reproduce what is get put, gets put in you. So how do we get back to Jesus' definition of discipleship. What does it look like in our context, in our world right now? And like this church. I'm not even talking about other churches and what everybody else should be doing. I'm talking about us. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many here, just ask yourself, would you say that you've actually been discipled? Like some, there was a season of your life where you walked with someone who was ahead of you in, in, in life with God. And they were, they were intentionally trying to shape your life to be more like Christ. Like that's, that's a real question that in your heart you should be like, man, Lord, if this, wasn't hap if this didn't happen, why not? How is it that the, the one thing... Jesus wanted to be happening in the church. How is it that so many have gotten born again, baptized, sent off to ministry school, ordained, given a, got into ministry, gone out, got to the mission field, 
you name it, having never actually had to submit their lives to someone for a season. How is it that's the main thing Jesus wanted us doing? And some of us in this room would say, like, that's never happened to me. But I got put in through the machine, right? Some of us get discipled and whoever was pouring into us is more concerned with us feeding the machine than actually being shaped and formed into the image of Christ. And so if we don't see that we've been subtly tricked and duped into believing that there's something else that Jesus is after, then we'll just continue going on with the way we've been going on. But if we actually look at our lives and say, Lord, why am I here? Why are you in this room? Why are you part of this church? Did Jesus bring you here because he was really concerned with you having Christian friends? Or was it because he wanted to put you in a place where you could be shaped and formed into his image? And if that's the case, if that's why Jesus brought you here, then what does your schedule look like? How much room do you give for this? If this is what Jesus wants. So Mike mentioned earlier that, there needs to, that we should have like a, a holy discontentment with when we pray for the sick and we don't see results. I agree. I, I, I've lived with that burden and that holy discontentment for a really long time. But I also have it in this area. That if we're going to say we believe that this is what Jesus wants, then I believe it's absolutely worth it to rearrange our entire lives. Now, it may seem like, man, you're asking a lot. I don't think I'm asking enough. Because I believe it's absolutely worth rearranging our lives. And I would submit because all of us are not new believers and we've been around for a while, this requires a little bit of humility to actually come to someone and say, hey, would you be willing to pour into my life? Would you be willing to allow me to submit myself to you? Because we, we, we take the easy route. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with somebody that would be like, oh, yeah, I was discipled. Bill Johnson is my spiritual papa. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> the amount of times I've heard somebody say, oh, yeah, I got this. I've been, this person is my spiritual father. I've been discipled by so-and-so. Meanwhile, this person's never heard of them. You cannot get discipled on the Internet. Think about it. Jesus had his disciples with him all day, every day for three years. With him all day, every day for three years. And they're still making bonehead decisions, saying things that they shouldn't be saying. Hey, Jesus, they're rejecting your message. Should we call down fire? Like, can you imagine? This is what he, hey, Jesus, they're rejecting you. Should we kill them? What do you think? Right? After three years, Jesus tells them, hey, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be handed over. Peter says, nope, not on my watch. He rebukes Peter. And then when it happens, what does Peter do? Pulls out a knife and tries to cut the guy's throat. 
Yeah, he got his ear, but you think he was aiming for his ear? Jesus invested his life into these guys and still said after three years, listen, and this is the key here. He tells them in Acts 1, you're going to need the Holy Spirit in order to live this thing out. You're going to have to be filled with the Holy Ghost if you're actually going to live this out. And so in our own world, I want to encourage us to really weigh before the Lord how he defines discipleship. The ship part implies that you're in the state of, in a friendship, a relationship. Discipleship means I'm in the process of being discipled. I've given myself to say, hey, would you be willing? And then... As crazy as it may sound, trusting the Lord to use that relationship to actually shape you and mold you. I mean, this is the, this is the thing. Like, Jesus is like, hey, this is what I want you to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Most of the time when people talk about the Great Commission, it's like, hey, you need to go out and make disciples. I believe the word for us is like, hey, you need to get discipled. Because too many of us have been allowed to coast by for far too long and never actually given ourselves to the challenging but wonderful process of being shaped by the people of God. And I, I, I believe with everything in me that if we would actually give ourselves to this and all areas that it'll bear fruit that will impact eternity. It'll change things. My life is forever changed because I met Dave and I submitted my life to him. My life is forever changed because I was willing to ride around in a Honda Civic delivering pizzas. I didn't even, I didn't even work. I got free, all I got was a free pizza. That's all I got. I, there was, I, in, in my mind, it was like I had nothing else going on, but I, I wanted what he had, and I didn't know how to get it. So I figured I would settle for just time. Not knowing, eight months later, I would realize that it's what I needed. So my last question is, like, what's the vision that you have for your life here in God? What is it that you're believing God for in your life? Because I promise you, whatever it is, that he, whatever dream he's put in you, I, I genuinely believe that it's accessible here with the people in this room. You want to be a better husband, better father, better wife, better mother, better businessman, better whatever? There are people here that if you actually chose to submit your life to, and it's going to take time. It's going to take time. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to cost you money. You're going to lose sleep. You're going to get irritated. But it's going to be worth it. But it has to start with what's the Lord's desire? Why are we here, to get, why are we here together? It's not just because we needed a place to go to church today. 
If it was just a satisfied desire to go to church, 3 o'clock in the afternoon is not my ideal time. If it was just to satisfy a desire to go to church, I wouldn't be driving the St. Cloud. There's other ways that I could scratch that itch. But the reality is I believe that this is what the Lord wants. It's what he desires, and I believe it's worth it. I believe he's worth setting up my entire life to give him what he wants for the rest of my life. Actually changing the way my life looks so that he could get what he wants out of me. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Jesus, I'm asking you to reveal to us your desires for us here. That we would humbly approach your body, your church, the way that you want us to, God. With a posture of students wanting to learn, desiring to mature in you. So God, help us. Help us, God, to be students that become like you. I pray, Lord, for the grace to walk in humility, the grace to be discipled, that you would have a, a church here, Lord, that is truly and genuinely giving you what you want. We're shaping one another into your image. That we wouldn't just settle for good Christian friends, but that our relationships would be Rooted in what burns in your heart. In every sense of the word. Jesus, we're asking you for help. We love you and we trust you in your way. Amen. Amen. Um. One of the questions that I've been asked several times um, since we've moved to Orlando, um, and I'm not talking about from people outside, I'm talking about from those of us within the church, um, is what is evangelism and what does it actually look like for us? Um, and there's been maybe a handful of people who've asked this question, have pondered it, um, and so I'm going to take a few minutes to try and answer those questions. Um, again, looking to the scriptures, looking to the life of Jesus. Evangelism is one of the scripture, or, or I guess a topic that's not extensively um, pointed to in scriptures, but instead we more so look to the life of Jesus. Um, but when I was considering these things, I felt like the Lord was sharing um, his thoughts and insight. And so in a simple way, I, said, I, I jotted this note down. Evangelism is the declaration. It's both the declaration and the demonstration of the gospel uh, with the goal of bringing people, not just, un, not just people who are unsaved, but maybe even people who've actually encountered the Lord, um, but bringing people to the point of surrendering their life to him as the Lord of their lives and aligning their lives to his purposes here in the earth. Um, so what that means is it's not just a big outdoor meeting, and it also doesn't mean that it's not an outdoor, big outdoor meeting. Um, we have to look at the life of Jesus and consider what does evangelism look like. 
And as I prayed through these things, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me about a few different stories. And then as I started to consider those stories, I, I felt like he was putting the pieces of the puzzle together for me. Um, and he, he brought up a few, a few uh, different stories uh, that he was involved in. And so um, I'm just going to name them real fast, and then we can kind of consider those for the sake of time. It's not going to be an exhaustive list of every time Jesus was uh, behaving evangelistically. That would be challenging to cover in the 15, minute, 15 20 minute time period. Um, but there are a handful of them. So in John 3, you see the account of Jesus and Nicodemus, who's a religious leader, um, somebody who has a lot of head knowledge, uh, somebody who knows the scriptures, um, but he still in, finds himself in an encounter with Jesus where Jesus is sharing things that are actually confounding to him because he doesn't have. Uh, a true knowledge of who God is. I mean, so he's actually having a conversation with him about how do I become born again. And Jesus doesn't just make it so simple to say, well, let's pray a simple prayer and you're going to be a part of the family. He actually makes him wrestle through things that are challenging for him to come to the place where he would realize who Jesus is and make a decision to, uh, to make him the Lord. I, I shouldn't say make him. To invite him to be the Lord and ruler of his heart and his life. Um, so he's a religious leader. This is, this is one of the points that I think is important for us. It's not just, he's not just out in the street corners in, the, in, in Kissimmee or down OBT with the roughest of the rough. He's actually an intelligent, probably wealthy individual um, who knows about God. He knows of God. He believes God is real. Um, if you had that type of a conversation with him, he would say those things. He's expecting the Messiah one day, um, but he's encountering Jesus, and his heart has to be won over as he encounters Jesus there. Then John chapter 4, you have the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, again, she is expectantly looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and they're wrestling through this conversation once again. Completely different individual, somebody he wasn't even supposed to be talking to, but it seems his way he went out of his way to create an intersection, a personal one-on-one -on -one moment with somebody so that he could reveal himself and again bring this individual into a moment where she could make a decision and say, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to give you my life. Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus, he's walking along, and there's a man who's desperate to see Jesus. I've got to see him. I'm desperate to see him. He didn't deserve to see him. He had no right to see him, but there's a man who's desperate to see him. We all understand the story. Zacchaeus is the tax collector. Zacchaeus has robbed people. He's not worthy, but he's a man who's hungry, and he's desperate to see Jesus. And Jesus is walking along, and he's like, come, on, come down. I'm going to come to your house today. He says, I must stay at your house today. And then he tells him, salvation has come to your house today. And so, again, there's this personal one-on-one, -on -one, like, I'm going to come to your house conversation going on. Luke chapter 24 the disciples are in the road to Emmaus. Jesus is walking along. He, he appears. He starts walking alongside of them. They're blinded from being able to see who he is. 
But then he begins to reveal himself to them through the scriptures. Again, one-on-one, they beg him to stay. He pretends like he's going to continue his journey and go where he's going. They beg him to stay. Please come to our home. Please come and be with us. Don't go anywhere. He chooses to stay. And then as he's sitting at the table with them breaking bread, their eyes are open. They realize who it is. He disappears, and they're left with this question, we're not our hearts burning. What's going on? So these are all personal accounts where Jesus is in a one-on-one type of a way revealing himself through mysteries. Not just like, I'm Jesus, you have to answer me, say this prayer, all of a sudden we're going to get you into a church and now we've put you into, like Frankie said, the system and we have evangelism. Um, and it's also, none of these examples I've just given, I think we would all agree there, there are moments where Jesus was behaving evangelistically. He was operating evangelistically, but there weren't any mass crowds. Again, I'm not saying mass crowds are wrong because you actually see that in the scripture in the life of Jesus as well. There's moments where the crowds gathered, but I don't think they're as prevalent as we would like to make them in our minds when we consider the conversation of evangelism. And I believe the reason we prefer it to be that way is because when it's a mass crusade, mass neighborhood evangelism idea, it really takes a lot of the burden and responsibility off of us as a people. See, the idea of evangelism is to demonstrate and declare the gospel. Why? So that people, just like they did when they encountered Jesus, he is revealed and they have to wrestle through a decision. Am I going to surrender my life to him and walk with him according to his purposes and his ways? That's easy for us to consider in light of mass evangelism. It's easy for us to consider that and say, oh, well, there's this big evangelistic crusade happening in our city, or there's a big evangelistic event happening in this area or this region or even in this nation, and so we're going to fund it. Those things are easy, right? But then when he actually invites us to live our lives evangelistically, how does it impact us? Now, as it was already mentioned, there's a price that I have to pay because that means I'm inviting someone to my home so that my life can actually demonstrate, so that my family can actually demonstrate something that now is producing the same results or the same fruit that you see as Jesus is going throughout his day-to-day life. And now there's a burden and a responsibility that we carry as a people to live our lives evangelistically. And it doesn't always mean, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's not, but it doesn't always mean that it's going out to street corners, passing out tracks, passing out bottled waters because it's 115,000 degrees outside right now and we want to tell people about Jesus. I'm not saying these things are wrong and they can't be done in an evangelistic way. What I'm saying is what we see predominantly is not this mass evangelistic outreach that in the life of Jesus or these, these events that are put together. What we see is he's living his life in such a way that he is being revealed all of this, those encounters, the, the encounter with Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, what did, what did he say to her? She said, surely the Messiah is coming. I know he's coming. She's expectant. And his response is, I am who you speak of. It's me. I'm the one that you're looking for. Nicodemus, same situ- situation. 
He's speaking to Nicodemus and he's telling him with, with maybe less words or more words, it's me that you're looking for. You know that. You have to be born again. And so now it's this confusing conversation that begins. How can a man be born again? You know, all of these different things begin to, to go back and forth in conversation. And ultimately what he's saying to Nicodemus is, you, it, it can't just be a head knowledge. You actually, you've encountered me. Now you have to make a decision. You've come to me in the dark. Are you willing to walk with me in the light? And so over and over again, we see this in the life of Jesus. And I think, again, as it's been done already, we recognize um, e- even, even when the, the crowds would gather, there was many times Jesus would withdraw. He would retreat. He would get in the boat and go to the other side because the crowds were there. Uh, but I want us to actually look at Matthew 9 and, and, and Matthew 10 just briefly. In Matthew 9, it says that he sees the crowds and he has compassion on them. So the crowds are gathered. He has compassion on them. And how does he respond? We see it in the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, he says, As you go proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out demons. Freely you've received, now freely you give. So in, in, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, if you look at the end of Matthew chapter 9, the crowds have gathered. He has compassion for them. And then at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, his solution is, I'm going to send out the 12. I'm going to put authority on their lives to go and do the things that need to be done. They are going to go and proclaim the kingdom. They're going to go evangelize. They're going to go find those who are dead, and they're going to raise them. They're going to find the sick. They're going to heal them. They're going to find those who are bound. They're going to set them free by this power, by this authority. And so the charge is when when you see the compassion of Jesus, it wasn't like, man, I'm looking around. The crowds are here. I'm, I'm feeling this great sense of compassion. We've got to put a big event together. It was, no, I actually believe, on, I believe in what's on your lives. I believe, even as Frankie alluded to a few minutes ago, Acts chapter 1, I believe that your lives are actually the solution that's going to bring a revelation of who I am, and it's going to cause people and call them to a place where they have to make a decision to lay down their lives and follow me. You see this actually in John 13, verses 30, John 13, verse 35. The way that we interact with one another actually causes the world to look on and realize, oh, wait a minute, he's real. He's real. So the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with them, there's this real-life opportunity to give ourselves to evangelism. Does that mean like, oh, well, I'm, I'm occupying the office of an evangelist? That's not what we're saying. But what I am saying is we're to do the work of the evangelist. What I am saying is there's a charge on our lives to, Mike said it this way when we were having a conversation the other day, not to be invitationalist because typically, since it's been the way that the conversation has been formed previously, we would measure it in specific ways. Oh, I'm being evangelistic. How? I'm inviting people to church. Oh, I'm being evangelistic. How? Oh, I'm out you know, at this big event, and we're telling people about Jesus. But we also have to consider it with 
the inheritance of Jesus as the center focal point, right? Because we can have big events. We could go into Kissimmee, and I promise we could, make a, we, could, we could get a big group of people together. We could tell them about Jesus. We could get a lot of decision cards filled out, and we could celebrate that. Be like, man, X amount of people gave their lives to Jesus today. Sure, but how many of them have actually been planted in a family where they're now going to be discipled? How many of them have been planted in a family where they're going to be loved? How many of them are actually going to be integrated into a family because this is what Jesus is actually after? Versus if we all lived our lives evangelistically and let, the, let that burden land on our hearts and on our lives in real practical ways. And all of a sudden our dinner table became the pulpit that we used to evangelize the world. Because we're living out the values and the convictions that were mentioned earlier, because we're living our lives that way, now we begin to impact people and evangelize them without actually sometimes even using our words. But because we've been hospitable, now, man, we've encountered, I've encountered Jesus. I want to respond to that. Because we've been generous I've encountered Jesus. I want to respond to that. Because I've shared meals with people, I've encountered Jesus. I want to respond to that. And now there's people who are being added into family. They're actually being planted as a part of a people, which is what Jesus is coming back for. I don't believe Jesus is coming back looking for a church of X amount of people that says, well, we've, we have 100,000 decision cards. Yeah, but where, where's my bride? Where are the people that you've actually planted into your family and given your lives to disciple and raise up in the, in the knowledge of God? Where are they? I believe this is what he's looking for. And so the consideration of evangelism, it's necessary for us to really bring it all the way to the point of what are we doing to actually bring the revelation of Jesus to those around us, to the point that it causes them to wrestle into a decision. I'm going to allow him to rule my heart, my life, my family, my time, my agenda, my schedule, my resources, my finances, and then actually bring them into a place where we plant, their, their lives are planted and we're discipling them. It sounds amazing because we all want to go to OBT and evangelize but nobody wants to go to OBT and invite those people to our dinner tables. This is just real conversation. I had a conversation with somebody maybe a year ago. And I said, it's going to be amazing to consider evangelism when all of a sudden somebody who's maybe over the past previous years a convicted pedophile. Well, when we say, like, I'm working, we want to invite you to church, that means we're inviting you into our homes. Oh, wait a minute. Now this is becoming very challenging. <laughs> I didn't actually want to do that. I just wanted to give him a cheeseburger and let him, like, let him say a specific prayer after me, and then we can chalk it up as a win. I get that. I understand it. And that's the way we've measured it at times. But I think we have to consider the inheritance of Jesus and what is he actually after. He's actually the after the restoration of this said person, and you can put in any kind of terrifying, descriptive adjective that you would like to to make it, you know, problematic, a drunk, a drug addict, a this or that. The problem begins to affect our lives in such a way 
like it actually affects us. We have to give our lives to what, it, what, are the, what is the aftermath of evangelism. It's a people who need to be loved and discipled. Even considering Acts chapter 1, Frankie, Frankie brought it up earlier. Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears to the disciples with many convincing proofs for a period of 40 days, teaching them on the kingdom. Right? And ultimately their question is, well, still very self-centered. Was this now the time that you're going to restore Israel? They're still thinking about themselves. They're still thinking about their own desires. They're still thinking about their own plans. And he says, no, I'm actually going to give you the spirit so that you can become my witnesses. This is his answer. They're with Jesus 40 days, teaching them, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what the kingdom looks like. All right, are you going to restore Israel? No, I'm going to give you the spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world, ends of the earth, because this is what I'm actually after. I'm after a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And it's going to require, as Frankie mentioned, the power of the spirit to come on our lives to make us a witness. And so maybe we've been thinking about it the wrong way. Maybe we've been considering it the wrong way. Maybe we've been looking for an evangelistic outlet instead of an evangelistic lifestyle. Um, just in the consideration of how it what it should look like, I think it should look like an expression of what we've experienced. I think evangelism should look like an expression of what we've experienced. Um, a simple example would be this, and I shared this at a, at a gathering recently in our house church. Um, Camden invited a couple of our friends over to our home recently. And they were there, and we all sat down at the dinner table, and they became extremely awkward, like wildly awkward. They're teenagers, so I wasn't that surprised, but wildly awkward. And so we're eating dinner. I'm trying to talk to them. We're trying to have conversations. Super weird. So they end up eating their pizza. They go upstairs. I'm just like, whatever. I don't really care that much anyways. <laughs> I'm just going to move on. So I move on in my whole thought process, like I'm not, in, I'm not engaging there anymore. Later, when they were gone, I asked Camden, why are your friends so weird? Like, why do you have such weird friends? And she was like, Dad, I went upstairs and I asked him, why are you guys being so weird? And her, their response was this. We actually didn't know what to do because we don't actually sit at the table and eat dinner with our own families. So we didn't know how to act. Like we were just confused. <laughs> we didn't know what to do. But we want to come back. And it's not like we did something amazing. I mean, it was bad. It was Domino's pizza, cheap Domino's pizza. Like not even like expensive Domino's pizza, the one you get $6.99 if you buy two or three of them, I think it was. You know, that one. So it wasn't like, man, you, like you got your parents buy amazing pizza, we want to come back. It wasn't like the conversation at the table was amazing, we want to come back, because it was terrible. It was an, a, a value, a conviction that we have as a family and as a people that we're going to share meals together and we're going to let the presence of Jesus be center at our tables. And they were like, oh, no, something unique is happening here. We want to be a part of it. This is evangelism. 
It, it, it doesn't have to be painted in some big, beautiful, crazy way. Not to say those things are wrong, man. It's amazing to see crusade fields filled up with millions of people giving their lives to Jesus. I, I want to be super clear. I'm not talking about that in a negative light. What I'm saying is, what is our responsibility as a people to live evangelistically so that we're bringing to the people to the place where they encounter Jesus and they make a decision. I actually want to be a part of this family. And so I'm going to align my life to this way of life. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is getting what it is he's actually after, his inheritance of people. And so we have to consider evangelism this way as we look at the life of Jesus. Yes, big crowds, big gatherings. This is how the, disciples, the first disciples actually came about, right? <laughs> if, you look in, if you look at the scriptures, Jesus is preaching to the crowds. The disciples are there. He gets on one of their boats. They're like, oh, snap, you're him. You're the guy we've been looking for our entire lives. From generation to generation to generation to generation, now you're standing on my boat. And he says, leave everything and come and follow me. That's evangelism. <laughs> Leave everything and come and follow me. You've realized it's me. Now leave everything and come and follow. And so um, it looks like both and. But primarily for us, um, I believe he's calling us to a way of life that is evangelistic instead of seeking what kind of evangelistic outlets we can create and give our attention to. So King Jesus I'm asking you, Lord, to help us. I'm asking you to have the, have the freedom to redefine what it looks like for us to live our lives evangel evangelistically. I'm asking for you to put a burden on our hearts as a people to open up our lives and open up our homes as we live out these convictions that we believe you've asked us to give our lives to. That we wouldn't look at opportunities to quote-unquote lead people to Jesus, but instead we'd open up our lives in real ways. And with the declaration of the word and the gospel and the demonstration of it with our lives, we would, we would bring people, Lord, religious leaders, people who... It's unspeakable that we're even in the same place. People who don't seem to have a right to sit at the table. People who we would think already maybe have given their lives to you in a specific way. But as you consider Nicodemus, as you consider the Samaritan woman at the well, as you consider Zacchaeus, as you consider... The, the, those on the road to, to Emmaus, Lord, they all had heard of you. They all had a head knowledge of you. They all had, in some sense, a hunger. And in other senses, a lack of hope. Lord, I pray that you would use our lives as a people to be laid down and given so that you can reveal yourself to the world. And so that others would find themselves in the place where they now wrestle with the realities of who you are. 
And if they're actually willing to surrender their hearts and lives to you. Help us to be able to bear up under this burden, this responsibility to do the work of the evangelist. Let us not be invitationalists. Let us not look for opportunities to invite people to church gatherings. But instead, let us look for opportunities to invite them into our lives, into our homes, to our dining room tables. Lord, challenge our hearts. Let us not be selfish. But may our lives be lived out in an evangelistic way so that you can have ultimately what you deserve. Let us not be a church who are excited about evangelism because we can produce reports, but instead we can present a bride. Lord, we want to be evangelistic not so that we can have amazing Facebook posts, but so that we can present you the bride that you deserve from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Make us these witnesses by the power of the Spirit. Do what you can only do by the power of the Spirit. God, and we say yes to you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for grace on our lives to live evangelistically. In Jesus' name. All right, we're going to close out in prayer together. We're going to do that a specific way. Uh, I'm going to ask everybody if you would. So there's three sections. It doesn't matter, I guess, how we do it. Uh, let's rally up with the people that are a part of our house church. And we're going to close out in prayer in a specific way together alongside of the people that we are knit to and anchored with in the different house church um, I guess you could say, experiences that we have. So however that's going to happen, um, we can do that. Everybody should know who's in your house church. <laughs> if you don't know, we need to have an altogether different conversation. Um, we'll start at a more basic place next time. Got some wanderers, folks. <laughs> Y'all want to occupy this middle section here? Yeah. As I'm saying, Frank, Frankie took that side. Seemed to take that side. This this whole middle section is open, guys. Like, praise God. This. This middle section. Um, in the consideration of how we're going to close out in prayer together, uh, I think it's important um, if we believe, which we should believe, that the leadership of Jesus in this season has put us with the people that we are. When I say supposedly, I don't say that in an accusatory way. Um, what I mean by that is we would have to reorient our definition of what church actually means uh, to where it's not just uh, the attending of Sunday gatherings or what have you, but it's actually getting anchored or planted or rooted with a people. 
right, to where we're not just uh, attending church experiences or what have you, uh, right? One of the most challenging things that we've experienced in seven years is for five of those seven, we had nothing else going on except becoming family. There was nothing else to do. There was no other way for you to feel connected to the church. You couldn't come to the prayer room. You couldn't show up at this. You couldn't do that. You couldn't do these other auxiliary things to be present with people, yet stay disconnected from people in real life, if that makes sense, where you could be present at church stuff, but yet stay distant or disconnected in getting planted in real life together, where the development of a way of life together had to be present in order for you to feel connected to what it was that was happening. Um, and so what we're actually going to pray about is in these three areas, right? Leadership, which was the consideration of character and conviction. The consideration of character and conviction, where our character and conviction provides evidence to people around us that we are transformed and that the consistency of our convictions in God, right, give a witness or provide the embodiment of God's desires, right? Andrew Murray said, God has no more precious gift to a church or to an age than a man who lives as an embodiment of his will and inspires those around him with the faith of what grace can actually accomplish. So someone that we would know, Robert Gladstone, said apostolic ministry is the grace inherent in a man that reproduces Jesus himself to a degree sufficient to plant and nurture genuine communities of divine habitation, love, and power. We're going to ask the Lord about our character and our convictions. About our character and our convictions. And the consideration that we are planted with people because God longs to influence our character and our convictions. Right? Just because we hold to convictions, whether loosely or tightly, uh, whatever that may mean across the spectrum, doesn't always mean that they're right or that they are convictions that God would agree with. Right? And in certain cases, they're conveniences and not actual convictions if we defined conviction correctly. <laughs> uh, conviction was something that I'd be willing to lay my life down for. And in most often, it's conveniences uh, because I wouldn't really be willing to die for the things I'm talking about. But, uh, but so we're going to ask the Lord in the consideration of our character and our conviction. And then our discipleship journey. And how we're actually allowing the people around us to influence that. Our character and our convictions. And the influence of the people that we are planted with to influence that. Um, I, I wonder if we had someone follow you around for two months, if they would come back and tell us that you're actually a part of a people or that you attend church events. Right, because at times we have language. We're not talking about the adoption of a language, right? We're talking real life here, right? And if God's going to get traction in real life and actually get what he wants, which is a powerful people, to grow us, to mature us, to develop us, it's not going to happen in some independent, isolated, fractured way. It's just not how he does it. There's an interconnectedness and an interdependence where the influence of life on life provides the crucible or becomes the mechanism 
that God uses to aggressively accelerate his purposes in our lives. Um, and then the, the consideration of us being a witness of these things to the people around us, to the community around us, and living in an authentic way that provides an evangelistic effort to those around us. Um, where we would no longer try to, in some ways, like suppress or keep to ourselves what God is doing, but where we would actually be what he prayed for, which is witnesses. Which is witnesses. Um, the New Testament uses the word evangelism or evangelist three times. It's Acts 21, Philip the evangelist. It's Ephesians 4:11, and to some he gave to be evangelists. And then it's 2 Timothy 4. In the last days, do the work of an evangelist. But it's in the context of a compromised church. <laughs> it's in the context of the church becoming worldly and normalizing worldliness. And Timothy having to evangelize the church back to aligning with God and his convictions and values. So as Steve shared, evangelism not only in the context, right? So some of us might need to be evangelized again. <laughs> Like, come back to the Lord, to his convictions and his values, right? So in the consideration, character and conviction, our discipleship journey, and being witnesses and an expression of that to all of our immediate spheres of influence and the places and the spaces that God has us on a day-in, day-out basis for us to provide that evidence and be those witnesses. Um, and so together in our, our groups, we're going to kind of figure out how to pray through that together. And that's how we're going to close.